You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Volker DeVries, a professional Rust programmer with a background in pure functional programming, who currently has the most commits to the Rock programming language. Even more than me, and I created the language. We talk all about real-world performance optimizations at various different levels, from virtual machines to optimizing for optimizers, all the way down to individual CPU instructions. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, real-world performance optimization. All right, Volkert, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on performance optimization at different levels. Because when I got into performance optimization, at first it was in the context of JavaScript and Java. And it was always like in the context of a VM. And a lot of what performance optimization meant in practice was figure out what the VM's doing and how it's optimizing things and then try to make my code trigger their optimizations. And now that I've been doing more stuff with Rust, and I know you have too on, on Rock and also at work at your job, there's like more to it than that, but there's also a surprising amount of commonality I've found with the like optimizing for a VM world in terms of like optimizing for the optimizer, <laughs> if that makes sense. But I'm curious what your perspective is as somebody who's done a lot of work on performance optimization, not just of the Rock compiler, but also of like you know, other Rust projects as well. Yeah, I think like my sort of intro to optimization is really in university, we learned about big O. And then that's how you learn about performance. It's like, well, if it's better in terms of big O, then it's then it's just better. And, <laughs> right, uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which it turns out to be more complicated than that. There's a lot of things that are sort of that have the same big O category, but then there's still big differences between them. And so, yeah, when you get into actually making measurements and actually writing real programs, you learn that the story is much more nuanced than that. I'm also reminded of a, in university, we had a, you could do like various programming exercises in different languages. And somehow someone had set the sort of the Python time limit way too sort of high. This was like a C programmer, right? And they had to allow Python. And so they had no faith in Python and they set the time limit pretty high. So this is like the maximum amount of time the program was allowed to execute before they were just like, okay, this is stuck in a loop or something? Yeah, but I could actually get it to, to be much faster than even sort of naive C solutions by exploiting sort of buffering in Python strings. So they clearly had sort of tried this in a very naive way and concluded, oh, Python is super slow. But then if you actually knew about the Python standard library, you could just get it to be I think it was faster than C++ actually, because Python string uh, implementation is just really optimized. So if you are first year bachelor student writing C++ versus someone that knows Python well, especially when doing IO, you can actually beat them with Python. So like performance really isn't clear, like it's not obvious, which is really the big problem with it. And yeah, you learn that very quickly where even if you try to sort of naively record some numbers, it's just very hard to pinpoint like, wait, how do I understand what actually influences the performance here? Because if I try it on someone else's computer or their CPU, right, then it might be wildly different. If I try it tomorrow, if you know the temperature in my room is a couple degrees lower <laughs> or higher, it'll be different. So yeah, performance is really complicated. 
I'm glad you brought up Big O because I also had the same experience where like in university, that's, or, you know, as an American, I would say it in college, <laughs> although I went to a place that called itself a university. I don't know why we have that convention. The term is sort of weird in, in English, like in, in the Netherlands, it has a very clear technical definition. There's like 13 universities and there's lots of other higher education sort of institutes, but they aren't allowed to call themselves university in Dutch. But then in, in English, they very sort of sneakily call themselves like, I think it's like University of Technology. And so they can, they are allowed to do it in, in English, <laughs> in the English branding, but not, not in Dutch. Yeah, as I understand it, if you technically, if you went to Harvard as an undergraduate, you would say that you went to Harvard College, which is a subset of Harvard University, which is like the research institution. But like nobody says that. They just say I went to Harvard or like if somebody says, you know, what university did you go to? They'd be like Harvard, of course. But whatever. <laughs> nobody makes that distinction here. Anyway, back when I was in whatever you want to call it, undergrad, that was the way I was taught was like Big O. And, and I remember the pitch for Big O, like the reason why it was taught was that it was sort of like machine independent. It was like, you have some sort of constant factor that depends on the particular machine, but then you have this like linear or quadratic or whatever else factor that's sort of like grows with the size of the data structure. And like, this is important because it lets you talk about performance in like a machine independent way, which kind of makes sense. But one of the things that we've learned on the rock compiler that surprised me, honestly, and, and still kind of surprises me is just how frequently you can, for example, beat a hash map in terms of performance across every single machine it runs on, where as long as the number of elements in the hash map is sufficiently small, and sufficiently small is like way bigger than you might guess, or certainly than I would have guessed. If you are not Google, then your hash maps are probably sufficiently small. Right, sufficiently small that literally just not using a hash map and instead making a flat linear array of your stuff. And every time you need to look something up, you traverse every single slot in the array looking for it until you find it. That's faster than somehow the constant time lookup of a hash map. And so I think about this in the context of what I was taught in university. And it's like, if the whole point is to be like, well, this is machine independent better because it's, you know, it's constant time as opposed to linear time, clearly linear time is better than constant time, all else being equal. It's like, yeah, but all else is so not equal that it's like actually gives the default opposite of correct advice for almost everybody, unless you've got like, do you remember what the limit was where you, like you did some benchmark of this in the rock compiler and there was some point where it crossed over and the hash map was better and it was like obscenely high how many elements had to be in there. I specifically tested it for a hash set and also it was a hash set of integers, which is a little bit, I mean, that has a trivial hash function. So this may skew the numbers a little bit, but it, it, yeah, just a vector was faster at 100,000 elements. Right, 100,000 elements. Higher like, than that. <laughs> yeah, but I also remember, and, and you make another good point there, which is that the hash key matters a lot. Like how, fa how long it takes to hash the key can easily put you over or under depending on how many elements you have, like compared to a, like a linear scan or something like that. Or especially like if you're fortunate enough to have integer keys and they map directly to array indices, then of course you can just like, you know, crush a hash map. But even if you don't have that, the hashing function being really slow or really fast is a potentially big factor that just gets completely ignored, generally speaking, by the hashing algorithm or a discussion of the data structure of like a hash map or a hash set. Yeah. And also, we can move on to more low-level topics, right? So like something like single instruction, multiple data, SIMD instructions. 
So they change the constant factor. So not all big O algorithms are made equal. They have a constant factor in there. So if you have big O of n, then it's still n times some constant. And the constant actually really, really matters. And this is sort of fun to follow. Like from time to time, you see some sort of mathematical computer science paper where they got the constant down from like 1.3 to 1.27. And they're like super happy with that advance. <laughs> right. Because all of a sudden, like things that would take till the heat death of the universe are like tractable right. or more right. tractable again. And they keep sort of trying to like bring that number down tiny step by tiny step. So... SIMD is something that, you know, you can treat multiple elements in one go. So at least conceptually, you can do in one instruction what would normally take like eight or four or 16 steps instructions. It's more nuanced than that again, but um, that really changes. It can make algorithms so much faster that it's sort of actually the sort of linear approach is faster than some, some smarter algorithm that in theory has a better big O class. But in practice, it's just like it doesn't actually sort of exploit your computer hardware well. Your computer hardware is very good at working with arrays of data and doing sort of predictable operations on them. And even if that is, in terms of big O, a bit less efficient, if you can sort of morph your problem into working on arrays and doing predictable operations, then it's probably going to be very fast. One of the biggest things that I learned in the past like five years, I don't remember when it was, maybe it was only like three years ago, about performance optimization is just how absolutely massively huge of a difference it is if your CPU is reading from memory that's in the L1 cache versus not. Just how that just completely dominates like everything else. <laughs> well, and how to exploit that, right? Because you can you can know it and you can look up a chart of like, well, if you do it from L1 and it's this fast, and if you do it from L2, then it's so many orders of magnitudes slower. But you have to actually use that knowledge somehow. And that is not obvious. Yeah, but it definitely affects not only your choice of data structures, but also your choice of algorithms. Even within like having the same data structure, like the, the access patterns that you have like within that, especially if your data structure is something simple like an array or <laughs> something like that. And it also gets into like, okay, you know that I'm blanking on exactly what the numbers were, but it was it was something on the order of like reading from L2 cache versus L1 cache is worth like either a hundred or like a thousand like addition instructions or something like that worth of difference. You can Orders there, of magnitude, right? right? Like, like literally. I mean, all, that term gets thrown around a lot. Like, oh, okay. okay you know, yes. like, I mean it literally. Like, yeah. actually, actually, like <laughs> multiple ten x's, <laughs> two or three. You can do so much math that, like, as a human, like I would take forever to do that. But even if I had a calculator, it's like, no, no, just actually going and getting a byte of memory from L two cache, and let alone, God forbid, you have to go all the way to main memory. You might as well just go back to an abacus, you know, at that point in terms of performance. It's just so unbelievable how much memory access dominates everything. And I never knew that. That was not something that I was taught. That was not like, especially in the like Java and JavaScript world of like just thinking about like, okay, what's the optimizer doing? I had small tangent. I, I had a really funny experience once where I was working on a project. We had performance problems in the front end. We were rendering like a couple hundred thousand like polygons to like, an HTML canvas. And it was too slow. It was like laggy. And so we're trying to figure out ways to speed it up. And one of the things that we tried was we came up with this design. And one of the things that it involved was we thought, let's tuple everything instead of putting it in objects. So instead of giving like names to the fields, let's put them in like square brackets. 
And our thinking was, well, that'll be more efficient because those will be right next to each other in memory. And that'll be more efficient than having these things that are like keyed off of, you know, string names. Turns out, as we learned the hard way, this is a performance pessimization. It's not an optimization in like V8. So what V8 actually does is if you do like an object with normal looking keys, it says, oh, this looks like a class. Let me legit this into a class. And especially if you're doing a high number of iterations, it'll be like, okay, cool. I will organize this actually into memory the way that you want. Whereas it assumes when you give it an array that, oh, this is probably not a, a class. This is probably just a dynamic length vector, like a list or something that can like grow and shrink. So why would I jit that into a class ever? So it just doesn't do that. So we basically just like made the performance a lot worse by doing something we thought was going to like improve things. And it really had completely to do with our understanding or lack thereof of like what the optimizer and the runtime was going to do. In contrast, at least if you've got an array, you know, like a flat array is like the backing thing for your data structure, you can at least know what the CPU does. But of course, there's always some optimizer somewhere in like modern software development. There's never just, I'm handwriting assembly language and it's literally going to exactly the same instructions that are going to the CPU, which it's not even like the CPU. As I also learned in the past few years, it's not even like the CPU will execute those in order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another layer of like, what does the CPU actually do and how does it work? Like you can have a pretty nice abstraction of, you know, you, like you feed it some instructions and it will just execute them. And then the answer appears in a register somewhere. But yeah, even that is more complicated than that. I think, again, this can give sort of very unintuitive results when you try to do performance optimization is that it's really sort of hard to get actually an accurate baseline because it then really starts to depend on wait, what CPU do you have exactly? And what is your data like? Maybe if you like you sort it or you reverse it and it's, it's oh, all yeah. different again. And also sort of the idea of branches in your code and when they actually are a branch versus when is the compiler smart enough to turn it into something else. Yeah, it just sort of spirals out of control. Yeah, the whole branch prediction thing, I didn't know about that. Dan Liu wrote this like very long article about how this works because he actually like used to work on building CPUs like at a, at a hardware company. Pretty cool. I didn't realize, for example, that like if I write an if then else, there's a pretty good chance that the performance of my program is going to vary based on whether or not the CPU correctly guesses before it gets to that instruction, whether the if branch or the else branch is going to get taken. And it's got heuristics, which for various reasons, CPU manufacturers don't want to divulge for like whether or not it should guess one or the other, but like that's a whole different level. Conversely, if it's very predictable how that branch is going to be taken, whether it's sort of usually true or usually false, then it might as well not exist. Then it just always predicts correctly. And that's why it really then depends on like what data do I actually give it. There is also this thing called the conditional move, which can, if you have like a ternary operator in many languages, between sort of basic types, like an integer, then it actually turns this into not a branch, but just an instruction. Although I think in certain cases, it will still then turn it into a branch. So it's, it's like LVM has this whole sort of weird bunch of heuristics for deciding like, should this be a branch or not? And LVM does that differently from GCC. So it's very, very complicated. Yeah, I mean, it is nice that at least we have tools like godbolt.org, which now it's like, I don't know how I ever lived before that existed. I was like, that's like a GitHub level of improvement. Just a service to humanity, really. 
Yeah. For those who don't know, it's basically just like a website where you can, it can actually pick from a bunch of different languages, including like Rust and Swift and Go and stuff. But also some rather obscure ones. I believe the universe or the language from my university here actually is on Gotbolt, which is oh, really? wild. This language is called Clean. If it isn't on there, maybe they ran it on a private fork or something. But I have seen it in the in the Gotbolt UI. So at least it's also extensible. I believe you can just sort of run it locally if you want. I just checked. It's it's actually on the godbolt.org. <laughs> it's clean. It's right right there in between C++ for OpenCL and whatever CPPX is. Oh, dear. CPPX? That has sort yeah. of weird... Okay. <laughs> we also got like Crystal, Dart, Erlang, F-Sharp, Fortran. Nice. All sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really nice tool to just sort of see, okay, does, does the computer do what I expect? Yeah, because you just put it in there just to finish the explanation of what it is. You put your code in there, pick a language... And then it just prints out, here's the assembly instructions that the machine would run for the code you wrote. Boom. Like you can find out <laughs> what's the CPU receiving, at least, if not actually like what is it doing. Yeah. It also, you can look at LVMIR in some cases, at least, which is convenient for what we do with Rock sometimes. You can probably look at WebAssembly as well, I would guess. Probably. Yeah. I didn't check for that one, but Yeah. So yeah, it's a really, really good site to actually verify your theories because guessing what a compiler is going to do is still hard. I mean, we set it up for success by using flat arrays and simple loops. And, and I mean, we write our compiler in Rust, so it's actually iterators and that sort of stuff, but it compiles down to just loops over arrays. And then we just sort of assume that that is sort of more or less optimal, and then the compiler can do some stuff with our branches or something. But it's very different from having a much more complicated data structure and sort of hoping for the best. Right. So another, another interesting topic with regards to performance optimization is when to do it. And there are a couple of different schools of thought here. So one is, I'm paraphrasing, but I've heard this said a couple of different ways, which is make it work, make it right, make it fast, something like that. First, just get something working. It's going to have bugs. Then step two, fix the bugs. And step three, optimize the performance. I don't think that's a great philosophy because I don't think it's a good way to end up with fast software. And the reason I don't think that is that if you don't at least spend some time designing for performance at the outset before you've gotten it working, it's very easy to, especially in step two, where you're like fixing all the bugs, end up very committed to an architecture that just cannot be made fast or at least cannot be made certain levels of fast. You're just sort of like, well, there's a ceiling on how fast I can get it now, and I cannot move that ceiling without rewriting everything I did in steps one and two. So you just won't, and that's what happens. And I think this knowledge just, like, there's a gap there, which is exactly the thing we discussed with performance is big O, at least in my university days, that is just how it was. And I think in general, and this is also sort of what we turned off about, sort of continuing my academic career is, is that the sort of craft of computer programming isn't really valued as much. It's, it's mostly about, well, you got to write papers and they need proofs and they need a lot of lemmas about your algorithm or approach or type system or stuff like that. And actual implementations, at least they didn't really matter. So in, in recent years, they've become more serious about having artifacts that are also checkable, runnable. So you can like provide a some sort of Docker container or a GitHub link. But certainly historically, that was totally uninteresting. And I think you see the results because this sort of like designing with performance in mind was never even treated there. Yeah, 
So another topic that relates to that is benchmarking. How do you make benchmarks that are trustworthy? And to answer that question, I think you have to sort of define what you mean by trustworthy. Benchmarks, by and large, are just like so full of noise that it's hard to trust anything. I think kind of the best you can get out of a benchmark is to say something very, very specific and very, very constrained. As long as you're careful not to overgeneralize, or if you're trying to extrapolate something or, or like make a general statement and use this as evidence of it, hopefully you have more than just the benchmark to back it up, I guess. We had our, our quick sort benchmark where we were like, really proud of, and I think rightly so, of achieving the results of having pure functional quick sort run faster than, this is a spoiler for those who haven't seen the talk, but oh well. <laughs> the talk is outperforming imperative with pure functional languages. And yeah, we got Rock to successfully, I say we, but like you did most of the work. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> it also, it builds upon the reference counting work originating in Lean and Coca. It builds on Morphic by William Brandon. So, I mean, it's a really sort of shoulders on the shoulders of giants sort of thing. I ultimately sort of wrote the benchmark. So I hope it still compiles too, like it might have broken. Uh, if it does, it's probably just like syntax changes. Oh, we can, we can fix yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think like in the talk, I was, you know, careful to say like, this is a silly benchmark. Like it's a handwritten quicksort. It's not optimized in any of these languages. It's not really saying that much, but the cool thing about it is that even with all those caveats, it's still not something you would normally expect a pure functional language to be able to do. That's just not an algorithm that at all you would expect a pure functional language to be competitive at with imperative languages that can do in-place mutation. That's like a first-class language concept. And so with all those caveats and bounding it, I think that's like a useful benchmark for people to know about because it at least proves like, look, we can actually do the automatic in-place mutation thing without sacrificing referential transparency or any of that and still get this impressive isolated result. But then you get into someone's like, is Python faster than JavaScript? And it's like, oh, that's just so, like you can't really say anything useful there. I think the most useful thing that I found to be able to say about languages is excluding FFI, assuming you're just using the language and not doing any FFI, what's the ceiling on the performance? And so like a language like Rust or like C, where you can basically make, just using the first class language, you can make almost any assembly instruction happen, get the compiler to produce almost any assembly instruction. And in some cases that you have to use like intrinsics and stuff, which is kind of cheating, but... Inline assembly even. You can, I mean, I don't know if you would call that FFI or not, but the amount of inline assembly that's written in C and Rust, my perception is that it's very low as a percentage of like the total code base. And secondly, it's usually not for performance gains. I mean, I guess in even more rare circumstances it is. I think it's more often than not because you just have some particular, like the problem demands it for some weird reason. You need to like access some particular thing or like you're calling something that's outside the program that needs things to be set up in a certain way or you're doing like a weird multi-threading, simulating green threads type of deal, that, that type of thing, backtraces. Other than that, if you're not using the assembly for the functionality and you actually are for performance, my impression is that that's like super, super low. In contrast, good luck writing a Go program that cannot be written faster in like Rust or C++ without either of them using FFI. The ceiling's higher. It's possible to write faster programs because there are certain primitives that are available to you that aren't available in like Go or Java or JavaScript or Rock for that matter, with good reason, because a lot of those primitives can cause problems with your system, not just your program, but also your system that are like way beyond the worst possible problem that can happen to you in Go or in Rock. <laughs> so that's the trade-off. But those comparisons make sense.
Well, and, and another part of that trade-off is that we, like our, the raw compiler can be much more powerful at performing optimizations because we know that values aren't suddenly going to change under our feet. And even in Rust, that should be true, where you have this whole ownership and, and lifetime system. But then in practice, you can actually just have a piece of unsafe code somewhere, which makes the optimizer's job much harder, where it has to figure out again, like, okay, what are the pointers? What do they point to? What are their sort of, this is called pointer provenance and and very complicated (laughs) again. Like Rust still has this issue more than we have it in any case. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I appreciate that we, we don't have that issue and like can do more optimizations. Although at the same time, I'm sure there will, you can make the case that that's, a convenience for the programmer where like, even if we do a really amazing job optimizing stuff and we just produce this amazing binary, technically someone could have thought to write that in Rust and like write it in Rust, right? Or, or in C or C++. Okay, so I have a fun counterpoint to this, which comes from the Lean paper that we, so Lean is a programming language slash proof language. It's mostly used for formalizing mathematics uh, these days. And it has a very interesting approach to managing memory, where basically any allocation you make, it gets a little counter, the reference count, and then that counter starts off at one when you create such a value. And then whenever it goes out of scope, in air quotes, that counter is decremented. And if it ever reaches zero, then that value is freed again. And we can then piggyback on that and lean this as well, where if that counter is one, then we know there is just one owner of that value. And that means it is possible to do in-place mutations without that validating referential transparency and sort of the other guarantees of a pure language. And they wrote a paper about how they do that in Lean, which we implemented in Rock as well. And they got it with a couple of additional tricks. They can write a red-black tree in Lean that is actually faster than the one in the C standard library. Oh, C++, like std. And... They can do that because a compiler does not feel pain. (laughs) And they went through like, okay, what sort of code does it generate? Because they actually, at least they used to generate C code. And it was just doing optimizations that a human wouldn't reasonably do because it would just be ridiculously complicated to keep all of the invariants in your head, basically. It would just get very, very hard. Whereas a compiler can actually, you know, it doesn't care and it just applies the rules. And so they were able to make that data structure just faster than what you reasonably can get in C++, even though technically you could write that C code yourself. That's sometimes not realistic. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between theoretically a human could write this and maintain that code base, and then would anyone actually in practice ever do that? (laughs) Or would it be some combination of too painful or too error-prone such that like, yeah, it could have worked, except that your implementation, human, is too buggy. <laughs> so nobody will use it. But I mean, I think this is so cool that we can have sort of a high-level language that still has this superhuman performance, actually, literally. I want more of that. And I think it's possible now. So you said before, like, well, we have these expectations about functional languages that they're slow. And that's really just, I think, a lack of ambition, because we can make them faster. We should be able to make them faster. There's no good reason that with enough static analysis, we couldn't just beat on non-trivial problems. So not just quick sort C programmers. Yeah, I think it'll be cool to see like as Rock matures and gets used on more and more like useful 
problems just to see like will there be any demand for oh well i need to rewrite it from rock into roster c or c plus plus to make it faster my hope is that there won't be my hope is that either you're like look i'm writing an operating system so i'm not writing in a language with automatic memory management you know which is fine and reasonable i'm not saying you shouldn't use rock for that there's that category of things and then there's like i'm building an application and man my rock implementation is just too slow and i really wish i could speed it up i guess i got to rewrite it in rust which happens to lots of other languages like javascript that's a big thing in the javascript world right now is like people rewriting tools build tools that used to be written in javascript in either rust or go that's a popular thing to do right now because the language itself has such a low performance ceiling relative to what's possible that it's like a big pain point for the users of the application. And I hope that Rock will never have that be the case. Like we can always, we put a lot of work into making this be true. So I hope it's true (laughs) that Rock applications just run so fast and have such a high performance ceiling that like, there's just not any demand for like rewrite it in Rust because it's like, what would that even get you? Maybe you'd get like point something percent faster. Okay, fine. You got rid of some bounds checks. Great. And Rust, you wouldn't even get that probably if you're using safe Rust. But I do think like in general, a thing that was like kind of surprising to me was how things break down between, like you were saying, like optimizations that aren't possible otherwise, and how much of it is just like minimizing overhead. I guess the third thing is actually making algorithmic decisions based on aiming for the the fastest possible thing. I'm reminded of a really cool term that Casey Muratori used in this video he posted months ago, but he used the term non-pessimization. So he made a distinction between, to him, he says, what I think of as performance optimization is where you measure. And you're like, I look at a flame graph or like I, I take some timings and I find the, where's the problem spot? And I try to work on getting that down, getting that off the flame graph or whatever, reducing its size. And then I measure again and see if it improved. In contrast, non-pessimization is basically just like thinking about performance when you're designing the thing and being like, how can I just apply heuristics that I know about? Like, this is probably going to be faster than that. Let's build it that way from the get-go. It's almost the opposite of like, make it work, make it good, make it fast, because essentially you're saying, think about making it fast while you're making it work and don't necessarily measure. You don't need to like stop and take benchmarks at every step of the way, but just be thinking about, well, hang on, what are some different ways I could use to implement this? And which one do I think is most likely without actually measuring to be fastest? And why don't I start with that as opposed to not thinking about it at all and just going with whatever works? Sure. But how would you know, right? Like say you are, you are a JavaScript programmer and you have some feelings about your tooling. So you set out to make better tooling for your JavaScript experience. And so you already know a language, JavaScript, and so you pick it to write your tooling in because that is convenient for you. And and you get hacking and you make something that's pretty cool and then it sort of snowballs into a bigger project. And then at some point it turns out that, okay, now it's too slow because we use it on, on a very large code base. With that background, how would you actually know what is fast? Because if step one for like, okay, you want to do this project, step one, learn Rust. And then step two, you know, take a a huge detour into CPU design. (laughs) That doesn't work. And so I really think there's sort of a huge knowledge and teaching gap here where there's just so much stuff that we learned that we have learned over the past couple of years that we had to learn the hard way. And luckily, we know a couple of people that are very knowledgeable about these topics. And that's very helpful. And In time, you learn what to Google, you learn what to test and benchmark. 
but there isn't a good way to learn this, really. That's a great point. Yeah. Shout out to Andrew Kelly, by the way, who we both learned a lot from. He gave a great talk at Handmade Seattle last year about how he learned about this stuff and applied it to the Zig compiler. It's like really practical, like for making any kind of build tooling in general, not just a compiler. I would definitely take a look at that talk. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a great point. It's very easy for, given the constraints of the environment, for people to just make what are logical decisions based on everything that they've learned and also everything that they're seeing around them that just lead to a bad user experience through no fault of their own. Even if they had decided to be like, I'm going to try and do the best job I can with performance, but I've heard that JavaScript is fast or like fast enough. So what reason would I have to think that choosing it as a language would, would lead to problems that would be solved by switching languages? I don't know that that's predictable given the typical knowledge set that's out there. I personally certainly would not have guessed that. I would have assumed that like, if I were writing a build tool in JavaScript five years ago, let's say before I went down this road, I would have just been like, yeah, that's fine. That'll totally work out great. What, what do you mean? JavaScript's fast. It's jitted. What's the big deal? Yeah, like think of all the millions of dollars that have gone to the V8 jit. It's going to be fast, of course. C++, what do you mean? That's a that's a language from like decades ago. That, that can't possibly be faster than that. Like, I just had no idea. Like I said, the knowledge is, I mean, it's out there, but it's not easy to come by. It's like you have to kind of like go searching for it. And yeah, I, I hope that's like a contribution we can make to the world of like higher level programming as like people making rock is hopefully we can make sort of a, a cultural awareness of that. There are some things you can do to make your software run faster and at least for me, I, I know like different people have different reasons for getting into performance optimization. But for me, it's like really about user experience. To me, to care about user experience a lot is to care about performance. You just can't have, it's just a prerequisite. A slow, laggy user experience is frustrating. It's not delightful. And so I want everything to be really snappy because that's what feels good. It's nice to use. And then, of course, you get into the question of how do you do that? And yeah, it's frustratingly difficult to like find information on how to like do that in the modern way when you're dealing with a sea of like high level languages and not a lot of accurate information on like how to get results. There's a lot of legacy lore and stuff like that about like, but this is another thing I, I learned is that it used to be the case that in the olden days, memory access was not the giant deal that it is today. And it's only the giant deal that it is today because the progress that we've had in like computers getting faster hasn't had the same characteristics as it used to. It's not like memory access speed has risen with CPU speed. It's like, no, no, CPUs got faster at like certain things, but they actually like didn't get nearly proportionately that much faster at like accessing memory. So now memory access today is also faster than it used to be, you know, a few decades ago when all the like big no O stuff was coming out and like becoming a big part of the curriculum but it's faster but like cpus are way faster than that in comparison and so it's not that memory access got slower it's just that you can get a hundred or a thousand x the number of addition instructions compared to like one read from like one cache level up not because the cache level is slower but just because the addition instructions are so astronomically much faster than they used to be yeah, I was also thinking about performance and having that in mind for user experience. I wonder how much of us not having that is a sort of shifting baseline syndrome where for most people, and even for me, like what is reasonable performance? I have no good idea of what that even looks like, which is kind of terrible. I know it happens because my phone is a couple years old. And so I know it is now slower than a couple years ago. Like if you tap an app, it takes a little while. I know that if I would buy a new one tomorrow, like it would just feel super snappy. And yet I don't 
actually feel like it's a problem because it's fine. And, you know, like I can wait a second. It's okay. And so, yeah, the baseline shifts. And so that's why everything is slow now. And I really think sort of then what you need is proof that it can be much faster. Once you know the power of your CPU, it's just, I cannot be anything but very angry at my <laughs> software. <being stuck. laughs> there is no good reason that this should be the case, given what my CPU is capable of. Yeah. And I think that touches on, I think, like a, a pretty straightforward explanation for like why a lot of things are slow is just that users will put up with it. And if that's just like the norm, everybody's doing it, right? Everybody will put up with it because that's just how software feels. And to me, that's not good enough just because I, I want software to be better. I want it to like realize its potential. I don't want to just settle for like, well, this is good enough because that's kind of what people are used to. I want to try and do better than that and like try to advance the state of the art and not just be like complacent with the status quo. And I, I think you feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's very reasonable explanations for like how things got the way that they are. And it's it doesn't necessarily have to do with like anyone being malicious or anyone being like negligent or like falling asleep on the job. It's just like, yeah, that's the way that the hardware evolved. And those are the incentives of the people making the apps and all that. But at the same time, I believe that we can make a cultural change happen where people know more about performance optimization and like how to do it effectively. And also, at least based on my experience, like doing it in Rock, the amount of time that we spend making things go faster relative to how much faster things actually run, it doesn't feel to me like it's been that big of a burden in terms of like planning from the get-go to be like, everything's going to go fast. I think if we were trying to do it after the fact, it might be really hard going back and like having to rewrite a ton of stuff. But just the fact that every step of the way we've been thinking like, before we figure out how this feature should be implemented, let's think about the performance characteristics it just feels like second nature now it's just it's, it's kind of the same thing as like before figuring out how to implement something we figure out what should the user experience be like it becomes a normal part of the process and i say this not having like measured myself you know it's not like i did an a b test where i could i could like actually say oh this is exactly how much time i spent on you know thinking about performance but I don't know. I certainly have no regrets about it. <laughs> well, I know that I have spent many an hour staring at a flame graph, trying to understand why it was slow. And I think we really sort of plan for success here and try to design things in a way that they could be fast. Then actually making them fast still often involves a lot of work where we just have to rewrite data structures. That's, I think, where the remaining potential is for us is writing the data structures in this way that makes the things you want to do sort of efficiently expressible to an actual CPU rather than having some sort of good... Yeah. Now, although I would note that a lot of those cases are things where we didn't know the techniques when we were going in, and now that we do... I think we would have just done them that way from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's true. If Andrew Kelly's talk from Handmade Seattle had existed before we wrote those in the first place, we would have just watched it and been like, oh, yeah, we should, <laughs> we should do structive arrays. But we didn't know what that was at the time. Yeah, but even then, there's a sort of a learning process. And I mean, this is personally why I think working on Rock is really cool, is it's a really nice sort of playground to play with these ideas in a way that you never would if it's just a personal project that the world never sees. We treat it very seriously. There is the sort of potential of real-world use, and we want real-world industry-level performance. And so we also spend the time just to learn, like, okay, what does data-oriented design mean in Rust? How do we do it conveniently where we don't? There's sort of a flip side where you go too far in your optimization, 
And it just sort of becomes a burden because everything is an array now and there's all of these indices pointing into arrays <laughs> and it's very hard to know what's going on. So clearly that doesn't work either. And you have to find good patterns to yeah write your code. Yeah, I'm reminded of the design of the dictionary data structure for Rock Standard Library, where it's like, well, probably the absolute fastest thing that you could do is an unordered hash map. But I had this big objection to that, which is in a pure language, there's two problems with unordered hash map. There are two objections I have. One is that in a pure language, I definitely feel pretty strongly that anytime you call a function the same arguments, it should give you back the same result, which means that if you want that to be true for an unordered hash map, you're never allowed to change the hashing algorithm or else it would violate that. Also, changing the hashing algorithm can break people's code when they, I mean, no matter how often you say, don't rely on the ordering, like people do often accidentally, and then you make what should be a non-breaking change, but it actually breaks people's code. And then the second concern is that a common antidote for that is to use randomized keys. I think Go does this. Or sorry, you, you randomize the hashing function with some sort of salt so that it orders the keys differently every time. So yeah, you find out right away. But again, like that's not how pure functions are supposed to work. And we want to do a lot of caching for tooling in the future based on the assumption that they actually work that way. So I was very pleased to discover this data structure uh, called index map, which somebody tried swapping into the Rust compiler in place of the unordered hash maps in the Rust compiler and found that there was no performance difference, which was really cool. Like it was just like margin of error. Like they were disappointed because they thought it was going to be faster but it actually was just like the same speed. But for me, that's very exciting because that's a big code base. That's a real world thing. That's not like an isolated benchmark that's just like, oh, let's do a benchmark of like insert these random things and then read them out. And that's the whole benchmark. What does that tell you about like real world performance when your caches are all over the place? You know, but this is like actually a serious large code base. And to me, that says like, sweet, this is like an index map has the property that it maintains insertion order. Whatever you order, you insert them and that's the order you get back, even if you change the hashing algorithm. So I'm like, great, let's do that. And at least on a theoretical level, I have not verified this, but I'm pretty sure that if you had a Google-sized hash map, just because I, I know how the data structure works, like there's gotta be some point at which if you have an absolutely enormous hash map, you're gonna get one extra cache miss out of that because it has to do like two lookups instead of one. And there it's it's got to make a performance. I, I just, if someone can show me a benchmark that it doesn't, I will be shocked, absolutely shocked, but I can't see it. But, but yeah, it seems like, at least for like typical real world applications, which is kind of what you want for a, a standard library data structure is like you want it to be generally good and a, and a good default choice. And like you only need to switch to a more special purpose thing if you have some really unusual use case. It's like, great, this checks all of our boxes. Picking good defaults like that and like taking the time to research them and try to like find something that fits all of your criteria, I think is like really valuable, even though it does definitely take some more time. Yeah, and so that's the data structure that we ultimately want to end up with. I know we have a current sort of patchy. Oh yeah, yeah. So the <laughs> for those who don't know, we that's the goal. But the current implementation is just like it's written in pure rock, and the index map we can definitely improve on performance wise by using some amount of like lower level primitives. But yeah, the current one doesn't actually do all that. It's just like an association list that's just sort of like a placeholder to tide us over until we have the like long-term design. But it actually, that thing's design is actually intended to be drop-in replaceable. Like we can just replace the implementation, but it even does the like the removes the same way the index map does removals. So nobody should notice other than it getting a lot faster is the goal. <laughs> and also now, yeah, again, thinking like also standard performance of your tooling just matters. So especially because we are making tooling now, and this is also personally what I what I like to make in terms of projects, 
you have sort of an additional responsibility of the time you invest in making it faster has two levels of the developers using your tooling are faster and therefore they can, for their users, make stuff better more quickly. So the investment that we make in terms of performance optimization is also so much more worth it. And it's pain I am willing to, to sort of take on and struggle through if ultimately that means it has a better outcome for for all users of our compiler, more so because we struggle daily with slow compilers in particular. Yeah, this touches on like one last topic I want to make sure to mention because we're coming up on time. But so one of my pet peeves is what happens to big projects, especially like frameworks is what I'm thinking of in particular, but also like big libraries in general, as they get older, as they age. What often happens is that they just keep accumulating more and more features that are for more and more niche use cases and make the thing more and more complicated. And in many cases, like not just more complicated in terms of like implementation and API surface area, but also in terms of closing off design spaces for future like simplifications or improvements or things like that, because they've just like sacrificed all their invariants in the name of edge cases and, and like new features and stuff. And what I wish they would do instead of doing that and like adding new features forever is just like, A, saying no to new features past a certain point and say, nope, I understand why you want this, but you're going to have to use the workaround. You know, I'm sorry, we're not adding a feature for that. But what I would rather they spend their time on, like instead of doing that is not just sit around saying no all day, but just spend time working on the performance. That's something that improves user experience, but doesn't break things. It just makes the thing better. But I don't really see that happening nearly at the level that I would like. I wish that there were there were a point in a project where it's like, all right, now we're in flame graph land. Let's go. That's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out like every new release is like, and it got faster. You know, we fixed bugs and it got faster. I would love to download new releases like that all the time. That would make me so happy. But usually it's the opposite. It's like, well, it got a little slower. But if you're in the 0.01% that's going to use this new feature, guess what? Your life's going to get incrementally better. It's almost the reverse, you know? <laughs> this is even assuming someone did the measurements, which I think often just doesn't happen. The solution to this is to have some sort of website somewhere and there's a line on there and it goes up or down with every commit or every couple of commits. And then you just sort of look for each release, like, okay, where are we at? And also for particular changes, just sort of see and observe how the performance changes. We have this in our CI for a couple of things, not as many as I would like, but again, this ties into the tooling is slow and waiting for CI is a real problem at this point. So it also sort of feeds back into itself where how much faster we can make the compiler is limited by the speed of our tooling, interestingly. But you have to monitor it, otherwise you're just going to forget. Yeah, yeah, I would love to put a graph of that up on the website someday of just like tracking the rock compiler's performance and like, Hopefully every release, it'll get better. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's like on us to model that, right? Be the change we want to see in the programming world, <laughs> as it were. Certainly, yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been good. We covered a lot of cool topics. Volker, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to me about all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, enjoyed it. Awesome.